Welcome to Improv Interviews. In this episode, we speak with Sam Longoria, improviser, actor, director, visual effects engineer, and so much more. Sam shares stories about his life in film, theater, and many Hollywood legends that he's worked with. Sam is an incredible person, and I know you'll love this podcast as much as I do. Hi, Sam Longoria. Hello, Margo. How are you doing today? I am fine and dandy. How are you? Oh, I'm just delighted. We've had our share of computer interplay. Now we're actually just two people talking, and I'm very happy about that. I'm ecstatic about it. We talked a little bit last week, and I understand you're not eating solid food right now. I'm not. I'm fasting, actually. I'm on the second leg of a 60-day water fast. It's occasional green juice, but mostly water. And uh, it has sharpened up my mind um, a lot. That was meant as a joke, but it's okay. How is it going there? I understand that you originally came to understand my love of improv through tapes that I made with one of my favorite people, Gary Schwartz. That's right. I did, and I was in. Cha- and then I saw you in some instructional videos he made as well. So I've seen you as an interviewer oh, yes. and a player. Quite nice. We had a lovely time. It was very, very nice. And Gary is busy touring the world and elsewhere at this point. He is spreading the gospel or the Old Testament of Viola Spolin. Just wonderful. Oh, I love it. it. It's changed my world since I've been really studying with him. It really has. It's incredible. How did you come to understand Gary as an improv person? Well, when I first started several years ago, I was searching the Internet for more information because I became instantly addicted. You could say OCD, but I'm not going to give myself a diagnosis this morning. So I found Gary's site right away, and I would go to it and look at it a lot. And then I noticed one day that it said contact. And so I contacted him. And so he started mentoring me online. But I'd love to work with him in person. Yeah, That's wonderful. I worked on the movie Ghostbusters back in 1983. It was the original Ghostbusters movie. And while I was doing that, I got to see the cast doing interplay on the set when they were doing their scenes. And so it was a very jovial, convivial, collegiate kind of atmosphere. It's just wonderfully funny and wonderfully nice. And at one point, I was in the back clicking frames, taking pictures of matte paintings. I worked in visual effects. And Danny Aykroyd came in the back, and he was very nice to me. And he said, say, you were funny today. I said, oh, well, thank you. He said, why are you back here in the dark clicking frames? You should be in front of the camera. And I said, well, thank you. I think so, too. How would I possibly get started doing that? And he was very nice and said, well, you should go to Chicago or Toronto and get into you know classes at Second City or one of the other improv places. And so after Ghostbusters, I had some money and some time, and that's what I did. I went off and studied with some wonderful people, and it was, it was very nice. And I had a great time, and I came back to Hollywood and completely misunderstood what Mr. Aykroyd had said. And I built myself a theater, and I did shows there for a dozen years, and it was just um, thousands of shows. And if you do anything thousands of times, you will um, get good at it. So I must, I must be doing the right thing, but I, I should really be much funnier. Well, remember, it's not about being funny. It's having fun, I think, wasn't that a saying I heard a long time ago? That um, is correct. Yeah. That's right. And being real and genuine and authentic. So, and you are those mm-hmm. things. But you're very funny as well because we've spoken before. So I know you're funny. 
You're an I hope so. You're an actor, director, writer, cinematographer. You're like, I think when they made that movie Wonder Boys, they had you in mind. Ah, uh, thank you very much. You're very kind. I got started when I was 14 um, in 1970. I was a kid who was flunking out of high school, and they had put me in all these honors English and honors math classes and things, thinking that I would just be delighted and rise to the occasion. But I wasn't because they were quite dull. I was an awful student. I was just terrible. And uh, so I would just flunk out of these classes. And so I never did homework after the fifth grade. And I sat in the back of the room reading the World Book Encyclopedia. And they were happy as long as I was quiet. And so in the World Book Encyclopedia, there was a wonderful article about how they had made Dick Van Dyke and Julie Andrews dance with penguins in Mary Poppins, because that was the big movie in 1965. And so I became quite conversant at a young age with the rank sodium vapor traveling mat system, which is yellow screen instead of blue screen. And I actually could tell you how it all went together and what the steps were and everything. This sort of got me ready for a career in visual effects. And actually, when I got out of high school, I couldn't really get into a regular college. My grades are so terrible. I think by law, they have to be stored in a cave. Uh, and so I have never, ever, ever enjoyed school. And so I went to college to try and, I guess, shake myself up that. I crammed four years of college into, I guess, six years. And um, <laughs> oh, me too. Uh, me too. <laughs> yeah. Well, you understand. And I went to a variety of schools and I just basically, I'm self-taught, actually. I was in the school, but I would use the library and I would go down to the basement of the electrical engineering building where they had a fully equipped machine shop. And I taught myself to use a lathe and a mill. And I got very good at making things out of aluminum or steel. And so some years later, when Star Wars hit, suddenly it was in demand to be able to program computers and make a computer take pictures, motion-controlled photography. And so I built one of those. I bought a movie theater out in Enumclaw, Washington, at the base of Mount Rainier. And I owned the movie theater out there, and I made myself a 35-millimeter feature film. So I was kind of ready when there was a motion picture seminar in Seattle. There's really no movie business there now, but there was one at the time, and it had a motion picture seminar, and people from Hollywood used to come up and talk about stuff. And so I met the Star Wars guys, and I met Roger Corman, and I met Richard Edlund. I'm still in touch with those people. <laughs> Oddly, the movie business is an odd thing. And so at one point, I got asked to speak at their motion picture seminar, and uh, I got to drive all these wonderful people who had won Oscars and made movies and everything around. And that was wonderful. And at the end of this seminar, we were all friends, and they said, come down and visit. And so... A year after I had seen the Academy Awards for Star Wars, I was actually staying in one of their houses in Van Nuys. So that was great fun. Oh, I bet it was. Oh, my gosh. And you've worked on a number of films, visual effects on a number of incredible films, and have worked with some incredible... And you worked with Mel Brooks? Yes, actually. I ran into Mr. Brooks's office because I was a big fan of his, and I had found a rare recording that he had made with Ronnie Graham. It was a Broadway show that was called New Faces of 1952, and I sort of ran into his office and said, here, can you give me an autograph on this, please, and hurry, because there's a policeman chasing me. <laughs> and he was just great. He was wonderful. And so I ran into him at the Oscars later that year because I had worked on Ghostbusters and I had worked on 2010. 
the sequel to 2001. Uh-huh. And so we were in the odd position of competing with ourselves for the visual effects award. And so I was there to root for us. And alas, the award went to, I think it was Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom. I ran into Mel Brooks and his lovely wife, Anne Van Cough, yeah. there. And he was great. We were in the lounge and he says, this is the crazy man I told you about who ran into my office. And she extended a beautiful hand that was dripping diamonds. She had beautiful white gloves. And she said, I've heard so much about you, (laughs) which was terribly funny. They were like the funny couple. Anyway, that was how that was. I had such an influence by Blake Edwards films. I loved the physical comedy Mm -hmm. and also the Mary Poppins thing that I had told you about. So, of course, when I'm at the Dorothy Chandler Pavilion, the first Oscars, I'm riding up in the elevator with Blake Edwards and Julie Andrews. No. Yes. Yes. And it was lovely. And so we had a a very nice chat. And I said, you guys don't realize, but you got me started in this whole thing. And so, you know, they were very nice. And it was just... uh, a wonderful experience. I had a great time there. And then, so that's where I ran into my friend Richard Edlund at the Oscars. And he told me, you know, stay in touch. Uh, something good will come of this. And so I did. I just sort of stayed on the phone with him for two years and told him what was going on with me and, you know, asked how things are going with him. And at one point he said, I'm going to be going back to Los Angeles from where he was in Marin County up there at Lucasfilm. And he said, and I would like for you to be involved in that. So, you know, come on down. And so I loaded up my Saab car and drove down to Hollywood and was there sort of continually until all the contracts got signed in Ghostbusters in 2010 were the first two projects that we had. And I sort of did everything. I did uh, machining and I did uh, uh, photography and I did equipment design and building and operating. and, And it was quite complex and wonderful. And I got to know the cast from the movie we were working on, Ghostbusters, and it was Danny Aykroyd who suggested that I get into improv, and that's what I did. So I found out that is my art form. That is what I love. I use that for my films. I use it to come up with script ideas. It's very nice when you have a theater and you have 75 actors at any time in your shows, and I'm extremely well connected now because a lot of my students and my actors from my shows went on to become directors and producers and executive producers. So that has worked out very well, actually. At the time, it seemed like an enormous waste of time and money to you know, build a theater and run shows in there. I've owned 13 businesses, and all of them were profitable except for that one. But I got a whole bunch out of it, so a lot of good things came from that. That's beautiful. That was the Wild Side Theater, is that right? Yeah, well, that was the Wild Side Theater. We have a couple of things in common. First of all, we've been game show contestants on some impressive shows. You're, uh, you were on Jeopardy, yes. and I was on Who yes. Wants to Be a Millionaire. Fantastic. Yes, yes. <laughs> Did that change your life, or was that sort of an extension of what your life already was? For me, it was just more, uh, I had a girlfriend at the time who said, Sam, you know so many different things. You really should be on Jeopardy. I said, okay, and I didn't think any more of it, but she actually called them and got me into for the test and like that. Without her influence, I wouldn't ever have done it. Was that something that you were looking for? when uh, your game show happened? Well, you know, I called for a year and a half. That was back when it was Regis, and you did the fast finger call-in thing. And I called in every night for about a year and a half, and everybody thought I was crazy. My family thought I was an idiot, you know, and not not differently than they usually think of me. And so, um, and I didn't even know the odds. I didn't care about the odds. And one day I get the call from ABC, 
and uh, it was an incredible experience. It gave me, you know, five minutes of fame. I didn't get my 15 because I think I was on screen five minutes, but it was a wonderful experience. You still experience. have 10 coming. <laughs> that's right. <laughs> you, yeah, you do. Well, that's wonderful. You had time to prepare. Yes. Um, I, I went in and, and we walked past this whole line of people basically trying to intimidate each other. Mm-hmm. It, there was a guy in an armchair who had a stack of Funkin' Wagnalls Encyclopedia <laughs> that he was just reading for fun, you know, and this was just to intimidate everybody else. And you just sort of reason your way through this saying, well, do you really think he's able to cram for stuff? I mean, that's just not the way the human brain works. You learn things over time endlessly repeating things. You don't do it by a quick read of the encyclopedia. And so I finally got in, and it was a 300-question test, and I got done as quickly as possible, and, you know, we smiled and left. And that night at my friend's house, the phone rings, and it is the Jeopardy people. And they say, you have scored the highest of anyone who has ever taken the Jeopardy test. We would like to have you on tomorrow if you can be there at 6 in the morning. Oh and I said, but if I come in, if I come in another time, will will this happen? They said, no. Uh, and wow. I said, oh, uh, uh, will I have any time to prepare? They said, no. Are you in? You're going <laughs> to you're going to do it. And I said, yes, I'll be there. Thank you very much. And I hung up. And so my girlfriend is jumping up and down with big eyes, going, "Is it the Jeopardy people?" I said, yes, yes, it is. And and are you going in? I said, yes. And she said, uh, when? And I said, tomorrow at six. So I had just enough time to go over to a, we were, you know, we were actors, and so we didn't have uh, uh, suits and stuff like that. So I ran over to the thrift store in Burbank. <laughs> I bought an $8 leisure suit. And it, a leisure suit? <laughs> a leisure suit, yes. It got worse and worse. And uh, I, got on the, I got there in the morning. And there were all these people who had stacks of clothes they had brought to do, you know, because they were going to be there for so many days. And so I just, I walked in and I just sort of winged it. And I learned a lot about myself in the course of this. I learned that even if I've never heard of a topic consciously, at some point I've either soaked it up or I'm able to receive it like a radio because I was, I am not a sports person. Do you know how long a nanosecond is? Mm-hmm. It's a billionth of a second. It's also the time that it takes me to change the radio station if a sports program comes on. <laughs> uh, I, I, I'm just actively disinterested in sports. And yet I was answering sports questions. You know, who is Shoeless Joe Jackson? And so I had no idea where these things were coming from, but it was working. And uh, so we got through the, through, through the whole Jeopardy thing, and it was exciting. And... Oddly enough, that is the thing that people will refer to when I'm talking to people in Hollywood. They don't say, oh, you've worked on these films that have been nominated for an Oscar or you have been to the uh, Academy Awards and the Grammy Awards and everything. They don't say that. They say, you were on Jeopardy. And I say, oh, uh, yes. Yes, I was. I was uh, editing a film in Berkeley in the middle of the night after months of working on this film. We all determined that we needed to go do laundry, so we took turns leaving the editing room to go off and do laundry. Well, it was my turn. And I went into this laundromat in Berkeley and I put all my clothes in the washer, including the ones that I was wearing. And I was just wrapped in a scratchy army blanket. And I sit down for a minute and the door bursts open. And this lady from the street walks in and goes, you were on Jeopardy in 1989. <laughs> <laughs> I thought, Goodness. 
so that was my fame. That was uh, it's a sort of a continuing thing. It's it's afterward. The Millionaire Show. That is fantastic that you were on that. It was, that you know, was a gigantic show. It was wonderful. I had a fact. I had you, know, you have three lifelines. I had a fact checker from um, the New York Times. I had a computer yeah. geek, and in those days, they didn't really they weren't hip to the idea about how fast you could get the answer on a computer. And right. um, my brother, who I consider to be a genius. So um, yeah. unfortunately, I was a nanosecond short of that first question. It was a movie question. It was a chronological. Um, actors' birthdays, and I knew it, but I was just a little bit short. And the woman that beat me actually was the winner, but she was—I can say this: she was so dumb. Um, she, she, used to, and and I knew, I knew all the first, and I knew all the, the first four questions. I knew down when they said them. So um, uh, Rosie O'Donnell had her on her TV show a few months later to try to ask her more questions to see if she was really that dumb. Um, <laughs> she she gone to stu- We'll be right back with the dumbest woman who's ever been on, on and then, and game then, shows. And then the other thing was there was a man who had been on Jeopardy. And first of all, he kept telling us all the time that he'd been on Jeopardy. And then he was so angry sure. that this girl, you know, beat him. Uh, he just, you know. But for me, I tell you, part of it was it was February 2001. And I lived in Manhattan for many years. I lived in Manhattan when the World Trade Centers were going up. And yeah. that was the last time. And I was by the Empire Hotel. I don't know if you've ever heard of it, but they shoot Law and Order there and things like that. And it was a yeah. beautiful it was a beautiful night. It was the last time I saw the World Trade Center. And that's a memory I'll hold forever. Almost more than being on the show for some reason. That that's a pivotal memory in my brain, I guess. So um but I want to go back to your education because so many kids are talented and bright and have all wonderful ideas. But they're so trapped in these little desks and schools that don't even give you time to play anymore. Correct. I think that schools are that way, too. Or they go the other direction, and it's all play. And they don't tell you what humans were doing on the planet before you were born. And Richard Dreyfus is an actor that I really respect. Mm-hmm. And he has come up with what is the problem. And I agree with him completely. He says that the problem is that they haven't been teaching civics how the country is run and like that since 1970. They stopped teaching that. And as a result, nobody knows what the procedures are. Even the people who are elected don't know what the procedures are. Especially the people who are elected. Exactly. And so his plan is to find some way to come up with the money to teach everybody how to run the country. And I think that that would be brilliantly the thing to do especially today. I mean, you just look out the window and it's because that nobody knows what is the proper thing to do here. And he phrased it and put it brilliantly. So I'm hoping that he gets that. Sounds wonderful. It really does. So a lot of the people I've talked to have talked about their childhoods. Everybody's had different childhoods, of course. Um, I don't know if you want to talk about your childhood or not, Sam. It's up to you. But a lot of people come from kind of difficult childhoods, and that kind of propels them into comedy and acting and theater, I think. I don't know if you'd like to talk yeah, about I, that. I've known lots and lots of actors because they were in my theater and because that we pal around, you know. And the number one thing that I've noticed is that people who are into comedy generally had a very strict upbringing or they had an upbringing where their parents said one thing and did something else because that sort of is what comedy is about is pointing out the difference saying oh you said this but here's what you really mean Mm -hmm. 
And so that is at the core of comedy. In fact, if that's all that you did was say, well, here's this guy and he's doing this. He says this, but watch what he does. You have a comedy. That's a comedy. Mm -hmm. And so I think that all of the people I have known who were or are in the performing arts, if it has to do with comedy, there is some pain somewhere. Mm -hmm. Because that's what you do as a comedian. You turn pain into humor. And we lost my friend Martin Landau recently, and just a week ago. And he was such a wonderful friend to my theater and to me. And he just sort of came came into my Christmas show. I was doing an improvised Christmas carol. And he gave me notes. He was there at the same time. We had a bunch of really interesting neighbors. One was Phil Everly of the Everly Brothers. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. And so at one point before my show is happening, Phil Everly is sitting in the seats in my theater, and uh, Martin Landau is in front of him wearing a big hat because he doesn't want to be recognized. And so Phil Everly says, Mister, you got to take off your hat. And he says, well, I can't because I'm Martin Landau and I don't want to be recognized. And the whole audience laughs. You know? <laughs> and, and so Phil Everly says, well, I'm Phil Everly. And I say, you have to take off your hat. And so <laughs> it, was, it was always funny at my theater, even, you know, b- between shows, even the audience was funny. They were terribly funny. And so I have a great deal of affection for those people. And I've, and I've, as the owner and impresario of a theater, you are the person they come to to tell their problems. And some of their problems are quite gigantic. Every holiday, I would have to get on the phone and just call and see how everybody was. And basically, I'd have to talk some people off of the roof (laughs) because they were, you know, it would be a holiday and they were all alone in Hollywood. That's like the worst place in the world to be lonesome. And so I got to see what our our backgrounds are like and they all have pain in them mm-hmm. and they all uh, are people who are extremely quick on the uptake i've only known one person of i would say average intelligence who has been in comedy they are all very smart people and they are very sensitive people mm-hmm. and so when you have pain over some time it's either going to kill that person or it's going to form a pearl and the pearls are what we create in our art. And so I'm <laughs> reducing my friends to oysters. I can see this. But even so, that's what I've discovered is that there is pain there somewhere. And in his book about movie directing, Jerry Lewis said that he was told by a famous therapist that he could be cured. He wouldn't need to be such an extrovert and so funny and silly and weird. <laughs> And he could be cured in under a year. And so Jerry said, thank you very much, but I don't, I don't want to be cured. Because <laughs> he would lose what he had. And what he had was his unique way of coping with how painful the world is. And so Martin Landau had just won the Academy Award for Ed Wood. And I was there at the Oscars when he won it. And he was at the very top. He's an excellent actor, just a fantastic actor. And he was generous and kind. And if you were another actor, he would tell you. He came to my show and gave me notes. Mm. Uh, So, you know, and yeah, and said, well, you know, this would work. Have you thought of doing this? And he did it in the kindest possible way. And 
such a nice person. And uh, I sort of, I got, he started calling me the mushroom man uh, because, uh, do you know what a kombucha mushroom is? Yes, I do. Yes. It floats in a tank of, you know, like a sun tea jar, and uh, you and you brew it uh, with. It lives on sugar and and black tea, and it takes wrinkles out of your face. It makes your hair go brown. You start feeling younger because it's removing toxins from your body. It's a very very powerful thing, and it's been around for thousands of years. And somebody had introduced me to them. And the thing about a kombucha mushroom is that if you brew one. You now have two, and then you have four, and then you have eight. Mm -hmm. You you are giving them away to everyone. Here, take this, here. And so uh, Martin was very kind and wanted to, uh, when I gave him one, uh, he wanted to share this with all his friends. And so, you know, Oliver Stone got one, and uh, Tim Burton got one, and like this. And so I was supplying kombucha mushrooms to Hollywood. So I was the mushroom man. And so, you know, it's like, it's like being a drug connection, but, you know, in a good way. Yeah. And so at 10 o'clock, Target store closes. And Martin had promised a bunch of his friends kombucha mushrooms. That meant I needed some jars quickly. And so it's after closing time, but we managed to talk our way into the Target store. And so we're in there, and there's, there are other people in there too, but, but that's it. They've locked the door. You're not getting in or out of the Target store. And so we're walking around looking for sun tea jars, and there's silverware and there's all this other stuff. And so I said, aren't you worried that people will recognize you here? He said, oh, no, it's not really a problem. If they see me, if they see me in my Bella Lugosi makeup, they still won't recognize who I am. It's only when I speak. And I sort of braced myself because I could see where this was Mm -hmm. going. Mm -hmm. (laughs) He said, uh, I am Count Dracula, blah, 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 you know. And so on cue, this lady comes out of housewares holding stuff, and she goes, oh, my God, it's Martin Landau. And so other people come running over, Martin Landau, Martin Landau. And so he's used to this. He's laughing. He thinks this is funny. And so he says, come on, Sam. And so we run to the door, and the lady lets us out, and we go running to his car. And she locks the door behind, locking the ladies in. And so we're laughing all the way to his Jaguar. And he says, this is what it's like. (laughs) This is my world. And it was very funny and very nice. And the fact that he could cope with all of that just tells me what a good, good person he was. And so I'm very lucky to have had my teachers be really, really good at what they do. You know, he coached me and mentored me and gave me great advice. And the other person of equal stature is uh, Anthony Hopkins, who I met at the Oscars after he had won for Silence of the Lambs. And he was drinking a bottle of wine, and he says, what's your name? And I said, my name is Sam. And he says, well, Sam, are you an actor? And I said, yes, sir, I'm an actor. And he said, well, sit down then, Sam. Let's talk about acting. (laughs) (laughs) And we spent an hour just talking about all this stuff and wonderful and I was in touch after that and my teachers for cinematography have been you know a guy with four Oscars and and another one so it has not been I should be much funnier I should have achieved more I mean I have I have all the same self-doubt that everybody else does Mm -hmm. except I'm working I sit and I write projects and I have them and they will probably all be around after I'm gone 
and I'm okay with that. I wish, <laughs> I wish that it wasn't that way, but that seems to be the way that it is. So, have you ever read any of Byron Katie's books? No. Ah, I was going through a really rough, tough time, and I connected with a guy who'd been a counselor for like 50 years, and then I think it was like 60 years before he passed. And he said, oh, you're in pain? You should read this book. It'll have you out of pain in minutes. And I thought, well, you know, it's kind of a hypey statement, except I got the book, I read it, and I was out of pain in minutes. Wow. Yeah, and her work is, she just called it The Work. She was in a depression that lasted 10 years, and then one day she just woke up and said, huh, you know, I could stop this if I wanted to. And she asked herself four questions, which ended up in her books as the four questions. And one of them is, I won't go through the whole thing with you, but it is, is this true? And what really is? What is and what do I think is, but is just actually wishful thinking? And once you start tying all of your decisions and thinking to what actually is, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. you don't lose your improv, you don't lose your comedy, but suddenly there is ground under your feet and it is extremely freeing. And since you mentioned childhoods have a lot to do with this and people's coping mechanisms by implication have something to do with that, I would recommend those books to anybody. You can find them at Amazon, just Byron Katie, B-Y-R-O-N-K-A-T-I-E. And she wrote several books, <laughs> none of which titles come to mind, unfortunately, but I'm so familiar with them. But you can look her up. I will. Uh, I'll check I it would, out. Yeah. Maybe, yeah. I should, maybe I should put a link up to her work, too. That way the listeners can find her easily. Oh, can you do that? Yeah, That's wonderful. I can do that. Sure. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I hope this is going well enough. Do you have any other questions that you'd like to ask? or is there? Well, uh, I did want to bring up something we had in common, too, as well, because back in the 60s, I used to sit around. I'm just a few years older than you, but not much. Anyway, I sit around my friends' basements, and we would drink Colt 45 and maybe smoke something different than cigarettes and listen to the Fire Sign Theater. And I know you've been involved with them. And could you tell us a little bit about that? When I was a funny kid, there were some things that you did if you were in the boondocks out in Seattle. You would really look forward to funny recordings. At that time, Bill Cosby was easily the funniest man on the planet. Mm -hmm. We would look forward to his records, and they would be insanely funny. You would laugh hysterically and almost die if they were that funny. And I looked forward to those. And I also looked forward to finding recordings of Stan Freeberg that I had never heard before. Mm -hmm. And uh, his United States of America is about as good a comedy record as can be done. And I'm going to try not to gush here because I'm friends with his son, Donovan. And Donovan has certainly inherited his dad's brilliance. And he's a photographer in Hollywood, and he is very, very successful as a result of that. And the number one thing that I noticed with those Firesand guys, somebody lent me a record. He said, oh, you'll love this. If you like Stan Freeberg and you like you know, Bill Cosby, then you will like this. And it was a fire sound theater record called Don't Crush That Dwarf, Handling mm -hmm. the Pliers. Yep, yep. Which, uh, is, <laughs> yeah, which is a brilliant title. I, I mean, you either got it or you didn't. If you got it, it's because that phrase, Don't Crush That Dwarf, sounds very much like Don't Touch That Dial. You know, so it's Don't Crush That Dwarf, which was a, an odd phrase. And so I listened to it, and it was wonderful, mm -hmm. absolutely 
wonderful. It was so dense. There was so much comedy on it that you had to listen to it over and over again, which was brilliant on their part, you know. So mm-hmm. you had to listen to these records. And so I listened to this copy, and the friend never asked for the record back, and I never gave it to him back. Mm-hmm. But I listened to it to the point where you could see light through this record. I just sort of wore it away to the point where I could recite it. That was an odd thing, learning I could recite mm-hmm. things. Huh, that's interesting. Like, there's 18 minutes, and then you turn the record over, and there's another 18 minutes, and then, gosh, I've been talking right along with this record. That's a very strange thing. And so at that time, yeah, what you described was very common. People would sort of withdraw to where there was a phonograph in a room, and you would all listen, and you would all talk along with the record or mouth along with it. And that was the first one. So then I had to hear the others and they were all you know, available at the library. And I was just consumed by this thing. And because of them, I read a whole bunch of other humorist kind of things like Robert Benchley's writings and mm-hmm. Dorothy Parker, all mm. those people. I was the kid at the library just sort of devouring that shelf that had all of the humor stuff on it. Woody Allen came out with his books and stuff from about 1969 on. So mm-hmm. early 70s was prime Firesign Theater time. And so they were my comedy idols. I had lots of comedy idols, but they were just unique. They were radio actors in a time when television had sort of killed radio. Mm -hmm. Radio was dead. And they were just doing it anyway. And they didn't care it was dead. They were just doing it. And they were so dang funny. And so when I had my theater in Hollywood, one day... One of my wildside people, wildsiders, brought in Phil Proctor of the Firesign Theater. Mm-hmm. And he was there for our rehearsal and he was there for our show. And he took us all out for pizza afterward. And my theater was ideally located. It was across the street from Little Tony's Pizza, which is like the best pizza in LA. And so that's what you did after the show. It was great. And so we all talked about comedy and this stuff and that stuff. And so I stayed in touch with Bill, and he came and was a part of our show landscape. He was just great. And so I had met them all at the tour that they did in 1975 at the University of Washington. So they recognized me by sight, and we all sort of got to be friends. And one day, Bill called me up and said, we've decided after 17 years of not doing this, we're going to do another record and we'd like you to be involved. And so I came and did pretty much what I did as an independent producer. You know, I would spread out food for them and make sure that everything was happening so that there was as little friction as possible in terms of logistics. So things would happen. And they made another wonderful recording and I got to be a voice on it and I got to have input and it was just marvelous. And so suddenly stuff started to happen. That uh, recording was called Give Me Immortality or Give Me Death. And it was <laughs> just wonderful to work on it and wonderful to see it come together. And then it got nominated for a Grammy. So we all went off to the Grammys. And that was lovely. And that happened another couple of times. They did one called Boom Dot Bust and then Bride of Firesign. And they just did a little slew of them. And it was for comedy CDs. And now, of course, it would all be streaming. And I can't believe how much has changed. I knew a lady who's 100 years old, and she had never driven or ridden in a car until she was 25. And when your life has gone by for 100 years, you have gone through some serious changes Mm -hmm. watching the world, how it has changed. 
And when we started with this, I had to go to a library and I had to check out a record and it was a big ordeal or I had to buy the record or I had to go to a record store. And now literally right now I can call up any recording ever on my computer just right now and listen to it at any time. That is utterly amazing. And of course, I'm trying to use that as reference. I can now look up things. There's just no excuse to misspell words anymore. That's right. That uh, is right. Yeah. And, and there's a whole generation of people that don't know about Fire Sign Theater. So I'm hoping part of this interview, people will start wondering about Fire Sign Theater and look for information and start finding out about what an incredible group they are and were. Well, how did you get in with the Fire Sign Theater? Was it something just from friends? Which This all sounds like drugs. Who connected you, man? Well, I think I mentioned that, you know, in the 60s, we'd hang around my, I had one friend, his name was Jeff, and his basement, he, his parents uh, were never around, so we'd hang out in his basement and drink beer, Colt 45, and then somebody introduced us to this marijuana thing, and uh, his older brother was a very brilliant guy, and he bought the first record. Don't touch that dwarf. Uh And so we would sit in that basement and listen for hours and hours and hours. So I was familiar with them back in the 60s when they first came out. So, uh, yeah. Yeah. Let me see. Don't Crush That Dwarf is kind of a mutual thing. Did you ever listen to their really early stuff? They did. There was an album called Dear Friends, which sort of gathered together all of the stuff that they had done at Pacifica Radio, which KPFK and it was just four guys who had never worked together before but really were good at working together and only discovering it now. It's wonderful to listen to those. I can recommend those very highly, especially since the engineer at KPFK gave me the Revox tape recorder that they recorded all that stuff on. So I've been sort of gathering things like that. I collect stuff as well. So that, of course, as a technical ex-boy genius or aging boy genius, depending on how you look at it, is something that I would collect would be actually the technical stuff to do it. Yeah, they were unique. There was nobody else doing what they were doing. And in fact, I don't see anybody who has, you know, come up to replace them. I don't see other people as in love with the language and Mm -hmm. as in love with concepts and ideas. There were funny things on each record where, you know, my friend Ko who used to listen to these with me, Koha Shiguchi, and I introduced him to the people at Ghostbusters, and he then was a great Hollywood animator at Disney and other places, and he got started doing the animation on my first film. And he, Ko, in college, we hit this line, I think it was in the Giant Rat of Sumatra. There's a line where it says, let's go down to the Mobius Dick, they wail all night. (laughs) Okay, now, and this, and this, this line comes after this wonderful long buildup that even they didn't know where it was going, but then it came to this line. And it was such a release of all of the buildup to the point where Co literally rolled about on the floor laughing and we worried for his mental health. Mm-hmm. But it was exactly the right response. I mean, that was a really good laugh. It was a very serious laugh. And it taught me a lot about how comedy goes together. And it taught me just their love of language, just how they would play with words. There's always another layer to it. And when you hit the other layer in your head, that's when you laugh. And it's like a comedy grenade. It goes (laughs) into your brain and then explodes. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. And so I love those things most of all, you know, and 
because of the fact they use multi-track recording to do their artwork, they have repeated this line that they are the Beatles of comedy. And, you know, they're my friends, so I won't tell them that the Beatles are the Beatles of comedy. But I can see why they would want to be that. Mm -hmm. Because, you know, we love the Beatles, all of us. And we loved how their stuff went together with a great deal of effort working on the same thing until suddenly you had this whole orchestra playing or you had all of that. Well, Firesign's comedy is like that, too. It is so multi-layer, both in concept and in execution, it is just splendid. It's just splendid. We have lost two, unfortunately, of the Firesign guys. Peter Bergman left us some time back in 2012, and then Phil Austin after that, and that's too bad. So my friends uh, David Austin and Phil Proctor are still with us, and I hope that they will keep doing things. I understand they have new projects, and I'm always happy to hear them. If you get online on firesigntheater.com, they have a chat every Thursday night for which I am always too late. I always go, oh, gee, let's see if they're still on. So I go on and it's always the ending. And so I <laughs> I sign on and say, gosh, I guess I missed this one. You know, I, do this. I did it every week until it got old for me. But they're completely available online. So if anybody wants to find them. Yeah, I'll, I'll put that, that link up too. Yeah. Um, you know, you said something a while back about being recognizable. And you are recognizable. That mustache you wear, has that been, how many yes. years have you been wearing that mustache, Sam? I believe it's been through several lifetimes, actually. <laughs> I would say, let's see, my friend Thane Morris, who is the world's greatest pyrotechnician, he blew up the Death Star, for example. Wow. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> what do you do? And he says, I blow things up, you know, <laughs> and, and he does. And he blew up our Ghostbusters building, he, mm. you know, so he, that's what he did and was our stage manager, too, at the same time when he wasn't putting explosive charges around. He has a wonderful mustache. And when I met him, when I was sort of auditioning for the job on Ghostbusters, we got to be friends like instantly because we had both blown things up as children. Mm -hmm. And so we were talking and talking and talking. And at one point I said, I want a mustache like yours. What do I do? At the time I had a full beard and I looked rather like Sasquatch. He said, well, come by my office tomorrow at 2 p.m. And so I came by his office at 2 p.m. He gave me mustache lessons. He told me how to trim it, what to do, how to groom it so it isn't all going every which way. And that was that. I've had it since then. So it was the summer of 1983, I think. Wow. So, yeah, but I had a beard before that. Yeah. Okay, it's a more, I've, I've actually seen a picture of you with the beard, actually, way back when, some picture you were in. Oh, um, my goodness. Yeah, yeah. but um, you have a marvelous mustache, and you are a marvelous man. Your energy is just incredible, and I really feel blessed that you had the time to speak with me, Sam, because I've really enjoyed talking to you, and you're inspiring. Well, we you're very kind. Thank you very much. Actually, another of my really great teachers is our common friend, Gary Schwartz. And Gary studied at the feet of Viola Spolin, who made all of the improv stuff up. Right. So you and I have both had an excellent mentor, teacher, and friend. Mm -hmm. And I'm very glad that your knowing him has brought you to me. And I hope we can do something together. That would be fun. Boy, would I like to do that. Well, I'll sign off for now, and I want you to have a wonderful, wonderful day, and I know you will. You're that kind of boy. You are that yep. kind of boy. I am. <laughs>
If anybody wants to get a hold of me, they can Google my name, Sam Longoria, or they can look at samlongoria.com. I'll put that up as well. Thank you, my friend. Jolly good. Thank you very much. Goodbye. Bye-bye, Margo.